Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. I suddenly felt my heart racing. The center of my chest was hurting. It was hard to breathe. My mind was racing. I knew I wasn't having a heart attack. I didn't have the risk factors. This has to be a panic attack. I'm a doctor, I should know what to do. Okay, okay, what would I tell my patients? Breathe. Okay, talk yourself down. This definitely wasn't the same sweaty palms and heart fluttering I had yesterday when I was about to give a talk to 500 people. Ugh, I felt like I was losing control. Breathe. I held my chest and pushed through it. I knew it would be okay. But right now, it just wasn't. I felt disappointed, upset, and scared all at the same time. What was happening? Why was I having this anxiety attack? Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call Podcast. I'm Dr. Asha Shahjahan. Our goal is to help you and your families live smarter and healthier lives. Today we're talking about anxiety, a condition that affects 40 million people in the United States. We'll talk about causes of anxiety, different types of anxiety, and how to push through a panic attack, and just what to do in general about anxiety. Joining us today is Dr. Varsha Kramchandani, psychiatrist at Beaumont Health. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so anxiety is so common. You know, as a primary care doctor, I see probably one to two cases a day of anxiety, and it's also known as the most common mental disorder in the world, and only 36.9%, I think, was reported actually seeking help or treatment for anxiety. Why do you think anxiety is so common, and then why don't people get treated? Well, anxiety at its most basic is an emotion. It's part of our survival response. Uh, For example, when you're driving, you have to have some anxiety. Being anxious keeps us alert, keeps us awake. Uh, We are much more cautious, and that prevents accidents. However, at times, the anxiety can become much more intense. And at that time, the person driving starts feeling tense. They tense up, their heart starts racing, they feel dizzy. Sometimes they have trouble concentrating. And when they do that, um, they remember that. And the next time they want to drive or go for a drive, they feel like they need to avoid it. So when the symptoms get very intense and then it leads to them being so uncomfortable that it affects their day-to-day living, uh, causes them to have kind of avoidant behavior so that it changes their life, that's when we say it becomes a disorder. There are many, many reasons why patients don't seek help. I would say primarily uh, it's the stigma against mental health. Mm. A lot of patients feel that If they seek help, they won't be looked upon with the same uh, view. They have a sense of shame. There's like, when you said sense of shame, it just made me think that a lot of times people will say, well, I should just, I should just get over it. Or like, you know, even I felt like that when I was going through that. I'm like, I can just push through this and it'll go away. Um, It's almost like this sense of like, if you're strong enough, you can get through it. And I think that's such a myth. Absolutely. A lot of people are very successful in other areas. And when they experience uh, anxiety, they see it as a person failure. Mm-hmm. They feel 
this is not supposed to happen to me. I'm supposed to be able to manage this. I'm supposed to be able to get over it. And they don't seek help. And sometimes what they might also do is they might try to self-medicate mm-hmm. with alcohol, drugs, and then they have the shame of that on top of the anxiety. So they see it even more as a personal failure. So it seems like anxiety is more and more common. Like how common is anxiety? Overall, in uh, the previous data with the U.S. adults, it's 18% uh, will have some anxiety. So it is the most common mental health disorder. Mm-hmm. However, in adolescents, we are seeing higher numbers and we are seeing them go up. And now we say it's about 31% or one in three adolescents um, have anxiety. All right. So one in three adolescents. What about the adult population? In the adult population also, it has been increasing. Uh, in fact, in 2016, I think uh, Barnes & Noble uh, released their uh, data saying that there had been a 25% increase in sales of books on anxiety. Wow. Um, and uh, the American Psychiatric Association also surveyed about 1,000 adults, and they found that uh, two-thirds uh, felt that they were anxious. This is not saying that they had an anxiety disorder, but two-thirds uh, felt that they were anxious. And then they repeated that survey a year later, and they found that there was a 5% increase. And then how, how many people do you think don't really even realize they have anxiety? Um, I've seen several patients that come to the clinic, and they're telling me about their symptoms, and I'm telling them, I believe this is anxiety, and they're in denial of it. And perhaps maybe that's why they're not seeking treatment. When people have struggled with anxiety for a long time, they sometimes start seeing it as part of their own personality makeup. Mm. They don't see it as uh, being a disorder. They see it as who they are. And sometimes they don't even know that there are treatments available or things that can change. And so they tend to just accept it as part of their personality and maybe focus on other physical symptoms. Um, So a lot of times with anxiety, you can get headaches, uh, insomnia, and patients will come in complaining of those um, rather than the anxiety, which they think is part of their personality. So let's talk about those symptoms a little bit more, like some of the physical symptoms that people have. So you mentioned, um, you know, some stomach issues, nausea, et cetera. What else happens uh, to your physical health? So when someone is anxious, we say uh, their sympathetic nervous system is activated. So sometimes when they have a panic attack, they can feel that their heart is racing. Uh, They have shortness of breath or a feeling that they can't get a breath in. They have sweaty palms. They um, have other symptoms such as headaches, insomnia, um, gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea, diarrhea, butterflies in the stomach, uh, frequency of urination. And a lot of times they see these as part of a medical illness. In fact, Mm -hmm. a lot of patients with panic disorder uh, can go to the ER thinking that they are having a chest pain, uh, uh, which is related to a heart attack and A lot of times after the evaluation, when they're told that it's just anxiety, uh, they're very surprised. Yeah. Have you seen Iron Man 3, the movie? Yes. I'm a big Tony Stark fan. And um, in the movie, he has a panic attack. And he's he's struggling to cope with his past, and it keeps coming back to haunt him. And there's this part where he's like, he's got Jarvis, his computer person, and he's saying, you know, check my brain, check my heart, check my pulse. And he's like, everything checks out. And he's like, so what's going on? And he says, it's a panic attack. And then he says, me? I'm having a panic attack? Um, and I think that's always the the kind of like surprise, like, 
I'm actually having a panic attack. And then I think not only is the panic attack a surprise, but I think the severity of the symptoms, the reality of the symptoms. I had a patient just yesterday um, who was telling me I'm having chest pain, I'm having chest pain. She's had EKGs, echoes. Um, She's been to the ER twice. She is taking aspirin now. She's like 30 years old, and she's just trying to be preventative about her heart health. And her father did have a heart attack um, in his uh, 50s or so, so she's concerned about it, but she has no other risk factors. Um, And it it seems like she has a lot going on in her life, and so everything's kind of been ruled out. And she's not happy with the diagnosis of anxiety. She's convinced it's something else. What do you do in those situations? And how do you how do you manage that in the sense of if everyone's telling you it's anxiety, but you feel like it's something else? I guess you would talk to that patient and, you know, really get her to uh, explore some of the other symptoms. And a lot of times when they are educated a little bit more, they do realize. Uh, what's important to note is that a lot of patients have panic attacks. Um, We can get into a moment of panic very easily. For example, if I um, feel I've left my keys inside the house and I've locked myself out, I'll be in a moment of panic. But that's just a momentary thing. Mm -hmm. It becomes a disorder or panic disorder when a person has recurrent panic attacks, but also they develop a severe fear of having another panic attack. Uh, The panic attack is so intense for them They have feelings at that time that either they're going to go crazy or they're going to die or something terrible is going to happen. And that is such an unpleasant experience that it actually gets them to start avoiding something. So if they had a panic attack, for example, in uh, um, a shopping center, they will avoid going to the shopping center Mm. or shopping mall. Um, And so a panic disorder is when a person has recurrent panic attacks, but along with that, an intense fear of having another panic attack and then avoidant behavior. So we would explore some more of her symptoms and see uh, how we can educate her. What exactly is a panic attack for people that have never experienced it? Like uh, everyone says it feels like a heart attack, but what exactly is going on? Because like for me, when I had my mini panic attack, I was in the middle of my working day. Nothing had happened to trigger it. And a lot of patients will say, I was just sitting and then it just happened. So, like, what causes that? So a panic attack is an unexpected period of intense anxiety. It's a very short time, but during that time, a person... Is it like the sympathetic nervous system just going, like, on fire? Like, just Absolutely, absolutely. So the symptoms that you have are of the sympathetic nervous system activation, so your heart starts racing, you can't breathe, you have sweaty palms... You know, you feel nauseous. What about the chest pain piece? Because that's a real feeling, like that chest pain. How how do you know if it's, like if someone is experiencing this chest pain, how do you know it's it's anxiety versus not something else? So I would say it is important for someone who has chest pain to get checked out. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're checked out and we've done all the tests and you've had a complete investigation, um, everything when we check it is normal, then the diagnosis would be anxiety disorder if there is, you know, no other physical thing that we can find. And then in in general, I feel like more people are being diagnosed with anxiety. Do you think social media has any contribution to the rise in anxiety? 
just last week there was a study that was published in the Canadian Journal of uh, Psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the study was done at the University of Montreal. 4,000 teenagers were followed and they were asked to record their time, their screen time. Mm-hmm. And screen time, including social media, television time, computer use. Oh no, was it like 24 hours? <laughs> Just kidding. No, it was quite a lot more than the adult population, but all of that was correlated with higher incidences of anxiety. For someone very young, it is very difficult for them to not have their self-esteem, their sense of self, and their social connections be tied with um, the responses that they sometimes get in social media. But also the screen time and the increased use of screen time has also been linked to increasing incidence of anxiety. Many parents are concerned that their child is anxious you know, as a child, and then they're worried that they're going to grow up to be anxious adults. Um, you know, what is the incidence about that, or what, do you, or what are your thoughts in, in terms of that? Well, for some, uh, the anxiety can become chronic and it can continue on to adulthood, but it doesn't necessarily have to be so. You know, if patients can seek help, if even with self-help measures, if they learn to manage their anxiety, they um, change their patterns of thinking, use cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, um, with both cognitive behavioral therapy and medications, uh, the prognosis is very good, and most people can resolve their anxiety. And then how, how much does genetics play a role in anxiety? So like if your mother had anxiety or brother or sister, what are the chances that you're going to end up with anxiety? Both genetic and environmental factors uh, contribute to the anxiety. Whenever we see a patient with anxiety, we often find that they do have first-degree relatives with anxiety. There's also the social learning theory where uh, we feel that patients, when they live with families, where there is a great deal of anxiety, that becomes something they learn, especially when we talk about uh, cognitive patterns and tendency to catastrophize, things like that. That can be a learned uh, response as well. Mm -hmm. With environmental factors, as we talked about, you know, uh, there are quite a few uh, things that they can go through in early childhood Um, difficulties that they experience that then can contribute to the development of anxiety. So both genetic as well as environmental factors. Okay, so let's, I'm going to give you a scenario here. So what if, you know, you're at home and you're fine, like your anxiety is gone, you feel relaxed, but when you're around other people or you have an event coming up, your anxiety starts going into overdrive and you start just thinking about it. So let's say you have uh, office party. You're thinking about that office party like a week before and every little thing that could go wrong or every little thing that could go um, against you. And then you start thinking about you, um, you know, what you're going to say, what, how people are going to perceive you. And then even let's say you go to the office party and it's fine, but then like a week later, you're still thinking about that office party. Is that anxiety? Yes, what you're describing is basically social anxiety or social phobia. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, very common uh, condition. About 7 to 8% of uh, the population sometimes experiences that. So if you have an anxious child, you know, um, know, even as young as maybe kindergarten, what can parents do um, in the moment of a child, you know, being anxious? Let's say they're trying to avoid going to school because they have some anxiety of something happening in school. Like, what's some advice that you could give um, parents? First and foremost, when a kid is anxious, I would say, you know, acknowledge it. A child needs to feel that they are heard 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they need to feel that what they are feeling is okay. And he, just by acknowledging it, that makes a big difference to that child. So In do you actually state the, like, the emotion? Like, I see that you're feeling anxious or actually use that term? Or how do, how do you acknowledge it? Absolutely. If they say, for example, I'm anxious about going swimming, you know, you say, I can understand, I can see. And can you tell me a little bit more? So at least they feel that what they're feeling is not invalid. Right. Because otherwise, then they don't know what to do with it, with that feeling. So it's important that you acknowledge it. And then, of course, you can soothe them, you can talk them down, you can help them with their negative thinking. So they're usually anxious because they're thinking of bad things happening or they're catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. And by reassuring them, they do respond to that quite a bit because that's what you want to change in the end is their negative thinking to thinking in a more positive way that is much more reassuring that they can then do themselves. And then is there always a route to anxiety? So can people just have anxiety out of nowhere or is there always something deep down that's causing it that either they may or may not be aware of? So anxiety, because it is just a natural emotion, we all have some anxiety. It's a built-in. It's part of our survival response. But sometimes it can be very intense. And when it becomes extremely intense, that's when we say it becomes an anxiety disorder. But that intent, like, is there something that, let's say, that occurred in childhood? Or like we say, you know, someone was teased or bullied in school. Like, is there always some kind of trigger in terms of that? Or can it just come out of nowhere and not have any underlying? I guess my point is, some people, we'll talk about treatments in a minute, but some people um, need medications and other people can do therapy and some people do both. And I just wonder, is therapy always needed? Because is there something that occurred in the past that's causing the anxiety that you can kind of go through and get through um, with the help of therapy? Or sometimes is there just no, no trigger at all? So when we talk about triggers, uh, it, there really doesn't need to be a trigger. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we are talking about anxiety, we think something big has to have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a small incidence of bullying, but for that patient at that time when they were younger, that could have been a much more important issue or may have affected them because they were vulnerable at that time. Mm-hmm. So therapy is helpful, and the therapy that is usually used for anxiety disorders is the cognitive behavioral therapy, and that is talking about changing the negative thinking patterns and negative cognitions, and also behavioral things that they can do to calm themselves down. Uh, But sometimes when we get into therapy, only then we can uncover if there are some issues from the past that may be relevant um, to the anxiety, but not necessarily. You can just have anxiety without having Um, something that you identify as a trigger. So what is the difference between someone stating that they are stressed versus having anxiety? We usually use the word stressed when we feel overwhelmed. You know, Mm -hmm. an exam might be coming up and a student might say, I'm stressed about it. Um, That's a little different than an anxiety disorder. An anxiety disorder, yes, they may feel anxious about the exam. Mm -hmm. But if it's a generalized anxiety disorder, they also have anxiety about a lot of other things. And when someone is stressed, they say, okay, I'm stressed before the exam, but once the exam is over, they can feel a lot better. But in an anxiety disorder, even though the one stressful event has passed, there might be other things that the person continues to find stressful. So we say someone has an anxiety disorder when their symptoms are much more intense 
not just normal anxiety, not just normal stress, but a lot more intense. It's more pervasive. They're worried about a lot of different things. Along with that, it interferes with their day-to-day functioning, and they also start getting some avoidant behaviors. When they have all that, then we say that it has gone from just being a little stressed to being anxious. So let's talk about what we can do about anxiety. So we talked a little bit about therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. What else What else can be done in, in terms of drugs um, versus therapy? Usually when it is mild uh, anxiety, we tend to approach it with therapy mm-hmm. first, along with some behavioral things that uh, they can do themselves, such as deep breathing, okay. mindfulness, meditation, Uh, making sure that they don't overextend themselves or time management skills so that they don't feel rushed and stressed all the time. But when it becomes a little bit more severe, then medications definitely have a place. Mm -hmm. And anxiety tends to respond quite well to uh, medications, which we call antidepressant, anti-anxiety agents, such as uh, um, SSRIs, as well as some temporary relief with anxiolytics in very extreme cases. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So an SSRI or like a, 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 an example um, would be like a Zoloft, yes. correct? And so if you're taking an um, antidepressant, that's something that you take every day uh, for a certain amount of time, right? Yes, Maybe yes. months, a year. And then the anti-anxiety agents, you know, for example, the two common ones uh, that we often prescribe is like Xanax or Klonopin. Are those medications safe, the Xanax and the, or the Klonopin, to take regularly? Or are those usually medications that are used uh, for the short term? They're medications that are used for the short term. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you use it long term, uh, there's a risk of getting dependent on it, and there's an addictive potential of these medications. So it's not good to take them regularly. Mm-hmm. But if someone is having an intense uh, anxiety attack, they can take in as an as-needed once in a while and reserve it for when the anxiety is very intense. So, and that's, and that I struggle with that um, as a primary doctor when I talk to my patients because many patients will say, I don't want to go to therapy. I don't have time to go. Um, I just want uh, something to make me feel better. My friend had a, a Xanax and I took one and I felt better. And now you're taking Xanax like maybe three or four times a day. Or, you know, clonopin worked nice for me. I'm taking it twice a day, every day. And they've been on these medications for years. What is your recommendation, not only to primary doctors, but also to patients who are on these medications for a long term? Like, what are some solutions on how to use those medications better? So some of those medications, because when someone uses it over and over again on a regular basis, what happens is they develop a tolerance to it. Mm -hmm. So if initially... One pill was uh, giving them symptom relief. Now they need two, then they need three. And then after some point, you know, it's not going to be working very effectively. Mm -hmm. So the patient must engage in some other forms of therapy or uh, medication so that they don't need um, the Xanax or the Klonopin or medications like that. And oftentimes that's when we start them on an SSRI and we find that after they are being treated for anxiety and the anxiety gets better, the need for these kind of medications goes down and they can then taper it off. And then just to be clear, that antidepressants such as SSRIs are not addictive, correct? Yes, they're not addictive. Um, And then let's talk about some natural therapies that people can do. So let's say your anxiety is not 
very high um, or you maybe don't want to take medication and you want to try something natural first? What are some options there? Well, some of the things that uh, people can do is uh, schedule time to take care of themselves and nurture themselves. Mm -hmm. We very often take care of our physical health. Uh, we go exercise, we uh, take care of our diet, and that's even very important for your mental health. And I encourage people to continue to do that. Mm -hmm. But alongside that, if they have certain ways that they can include stress reduction uh, with things like deep breathing, mindfulness, meditation. Very often uh, guided meditation uh, when they are anxious can help them. Um, all of these, I think, are very important to include in their day-to-day -day lives. What about um, things like kava kava or lavender, calamine oil, or even CBD oil? So I uh, don't agree with kava kava because it can be associated with a lot of side effects. Mm -hmm. uh, things like herbal teas or lavender, aromatherapy, uh, they're very safe. But you should always talk to your doctor about any other herbal medicines because they can sometimes interact with the other medications people are taking. As it relates to CBD, mm -hmm. CBD hasn't been FDA approved for the treatment of anxiety. There's okay. not enough evidence to say that It can be used. There are some reports, but further study is needed. And then just in terms of um, going into marijuana, so some people will say if they smoke marijuana, they feel less anxious, but can marijuana actually cause more anxiety? Absolutely. Marijuana can cause more anxiety, especially when people are taking it more chronically. In fact, when they withdraw it, they can have a severe anxiety. But also the THC in marijuana can give them paranoia, and the paranoia in itself then uh, stimulates them to be more anxious. And then what about exercise? Is that a good treatment for anxiety? Absolutely. Taking care of your physical health and uh, regular exercise when there's a sense of well-being that helps a lot in reducing anxiety. And then can anxiety be prevented? Well, you can help uh, reduce triggers as well as uh, do things that you can help manage your anxiety better. So, uh, changing negative thinking early on. and um, How does one do that? Like, how do you just, you know, you say change negative thinking. And it's like, I get as a parent helping your child um, think more positively, but as a grown-up, how, how can you change your negative thinking? Can you give an example of a good way of trying to do that? So, for example, we say sometimes you have negative thought patterns. For example, one of them is an all-or-none thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a person feels that either I'm going to do well in the exam or I'm going to fail. Right. So that's usually not true. If, if people don't do well, it doesn't mean that they're going to fail. For adults, it may be either I'm going to do very well in my job or I'm going to be fired and homeless. Okay. You know, people think in terms of extremes, so you want to avoid that. Um, so the first step is awareness of those thinking patterns of being pessimistic or being negative. Um, there's a researcher, his name is Rick Hansen, and I love the way he says things. He says, negative thoughts stick to your brain mm -hmm. um, like Velcro, and positive thoughts flow through it like Teflon. So we have a negative bias. So if our ancestors saw a big bad line coming our way, we needed to remember that. We needed to uh, keep it in our mind and uh, run. Mm -hmm. Positive thoughts don't necessarily need to be remembered as much. Um, so we have to make an effort because it doesn't happen automatically. So we need to 
remember the positive things that happen, acknowledge that positive thought, and over time you get into the habit of being more positive. I love that you said that. It's kind of that awareness piece or interrupting the bias that you have. Um, you know, there's a, the two parts of your brain. You have the prefrontal cortex and you have the limbic system. And it's like many of us think with our limbic system, the emotional part of our brain, and it's the prefrontal cortex gives us that opportunity to put on the brakes and sort of think, am I being rational right now? Like, am I... Um, am I taking this the wrong way? It, it happens a lot when you get feedback, right? So like, let's say you, you met with your boss and your boss tells you like 10 good things that you're doing and then tells you the one bad thing. And you just focus on the one bad thing, right? Because it's like, oh, forget the 10 good things that happen. And then you can start going into that Debbie Downer mode or negative self-talk that you're worthless or you're not good enough and all of those things. So that's a great point on how to interrupt that. Are there any other major takeaways that you have for our listeners today? What I would like people to know that anxiety is a common emotion, and we all have some anxiety. And at times it can get intense. But for some people it gets very intense where it affects their day-to-day functioning. They start having avoidant behavior. Uh, it can sometimes lead to depression and when it gets very intense, uh, I think they should know that there is help available. And I think there is no shame in seeking help. If you do recognize that you have anxiety, what's the first step of what you can do? Maybe we can have like a step-by-step approach. I think the first thing would be to talk to someone. And when someone also says that uh, this is anxiety, which is a lot more, which is not uh, in the realm of a day-to-day anxiety, it might be a good idea to talk to your primary care physician, talk to a therapist, uh, talk to a psychiatrist to evaluate whether this is an anxiety disorder. And even if it is an anxiety disorder, it's not necessarily that you have to go on medications right away. Mm-hmm. If it is mild, uh, I think learning ways to manage your anxiety and uh, can be uh, really life-changing for a lot of people. So talking to someone you trust and then being evaluated by an expert to see maybe the severity of the anxiety and then you can approach it accordingly with the, with the appropriate treatment. That's perfect, yes. So Dr. Karam Chandani, thank you so much for discussing anxiety with us today. It's so common, and I think uh, many people probably got a lot of help just from listening to many of the tips that you gave us today. Thank you for having me. So podcast listeners, we have some other podcasts that might be helpful to you, such as Stress and Burnout, and also we have a podcast on mindfulness. We also want to remind you to send along any questions or suggestions to the Beaumont House Call podcast at podcast at beaumont.org. In the future, we'll be answering our mailbag. Till the next time, thanks for joining us on the Beaumont House Call. We leave you today with this healthy thought. Anxiety can range from sweaty palms to feeling so intense that you feel like you're having a heart attack. We all experience anxiety differently. We learned today common reasons for anxiety and how to cope with it. Mild anxiety may be vague and unsettling, while severe anxiety may seriously affect your day-to-day living. We discuss various treatments from therapy, medication, counseling, and self-help measures. Remember to check in with your negative bias and interrupt that negative self-talk. The first step to anxiety is recognizing that you have it. Only then can you seek the help that you may need. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.